When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 15th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll discuss the rise of John Wall of the Washington Wizards during the only compelling NBA playoff series so far. Michael Lee of Yahoo Sports' The Vertical will join us for that conversation. Then former NFL player Stephen White will come aboard to discuss whether out-of-work quarterback Colin Kaepernick is being blackballed by the league's 32 teams because of his political activism. Then we'll take a look at Jay Cutler, Tony Romo, and the cult of the NFL quarterback turned commentator. And in lieu of afterballs this week, we will chat with Scott Price of Sports Illustrated about his fantastic recent stories on the cognitive decline of two members of the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins, Nick Bonaconti and Jim Kick. Josh Levine, the editorial director of Slate, is away this week, sitting in Josh's chair, figuratively, because he's in Los Angeles and I'm in Washington, is our old friend Brian Curtis. Brian is the editor-at-large of The Ringer. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Stefan. Only figuratively sitting in the chair because Josh's legs are a lot longer than mine. They are. He's got a very low chair. You probably need a higher chair. Yeah, just a little bit. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Brian and I will break down the awkward double interview of Derek Jeter, whose jersey number was retired by the New York Yankees on Sunday, and Alex Rodriguez, who's dating J-Lo. Join Slate Plus for just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Friday night in Washington, the Washington Wizards inbounded the ball with 7.7 seconds to play, trailing the Boston Celtics by two points. Here is what happened next. Décimos. Porter vai estourar os 5 segundos para botar a bola em jogo. John Wall vai com tudo para três. Bingo! Bingo! 
that was the call in Portuguese, but I think we figured out what happened there. John Wall hit a three with 3.5 seconds to go, and the Wizards went on to win 92-91 to force a seventh and final game in Boston on Monday night. It seems weird to call John Wall the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, a breakout star, but that's what he's been in this series and in these otherwise mostly dull playoffs so far. Joining us now to talk about the career of John Wall and some other playoff stuff is Michael Lee. He is a senior writer at Yahoo Sports' The Vertical. Hey, Michael. Hey, what's going on? You've been following John Wall, and it's always John Wall, isn't it? It's got to be both names, um, since he came into the league, first for the Washington Post and now at Yahoo. The perception of Wall and his perception of how others view him has been someone either undervalued, undernoticed, or underappreciated, or just dissed. Is that accurate, and what do you think has caused that? Um, it's really confusing to me um, because I feel like the perception of him and the reality of him are probably the least congruent in the league um, where I think a lot of people in the national media have been given a platform to speak on John, and many of them have never spoken to John. And anyone that's been around him knows how passionate he is about the game how intelligent he is about the game, the work that he puts in to be great, and his desire to um, to really win. Um, it's been that way from day one, and I think that you know a lot of people, um, you know, their first impression of him was that you know he's the guy from Kentucky who did the John Wall dance, and he's the guy that did the Dougie, you know, before his home debut. And uh, I know a lot of people jumped on that Dougie dance, but what people don't really understand about that whole thing is that John was actually egged on by, you know, people on the Wizards staff to do that dance, and he really balled out that night and led the Wizards to an overtime victory. So for all that was made about him and maybe not being serious about his craft, um, you know, the evidence that was used against him was actually faulty because he proved that he's serious about basketball from the day he came into this league. He dealt with some injuries early on um, that, that sort of set him back. But I think that now people are starting to recognize him and giving him the attention that he needs or that he, that he sought. But the main reason why and what he's always felt he needed to do to earn it is winning. And, um, and I think it's all starting to come together for him. You spent some time with him, Michael, last uh, spring. One of the things he told you was, quote, I should be seen on commercials in the nation's eyes and the people's eyes, and I haven't. How much is that in his head throughout this whole thing that he's not in the same sentence or even the same commercial as Curry and Westbrook and that he ought to have been? Um, I'm not sure if it's motivating him at this very moment. I think what's motivating him more than anything is that he wants to lead the Wizards to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, I think that that's something that he's felt that he should have already been there. He should already reach that point. Um, he made his playoff debut in 2014, and he didn't exactly play very well, but the Wizards were able to um, push the number one seed, uh, Indiana Pacers, to six games. And they they lost in six, but they lost all three home games, which is crazy that a team would push the team <laughs> to six games but lose every game at home that year. And it, a lot of that was because he and Bradley Beal just were too young and just weren't ready um, to, to take that next step. The very next year um, against Atlanta, they got to the second round, he broke his wrist and, and his hand uh, on um, uh, Jeff Teague undercut him in, in game one of, of the series against a 60-win number one seed again. 
and um, he broke his hand in that game and missed three games, but re- returned during the playoffs. I don't know if it, it's really mentioned enough that this guy broke his wrist and played during the same postseason, the same series. He came back, um, and the Wizards again lost in six uh, to, the, to, the, to the Hawks, and then last year the team took a step back. But this year John has kind of come in with a determination and believing that he should have led the Wizards to the conference finals by now and that, you know, to kind of overcome what's really been a dark period for Washington basketball. You know, I think that's totally fine to have that attitude for Wall. It's sort of whatever motivates you. I mean, this is a, a, a kid that came from very dire circumstances, right? His dad was imprisoned, came out yeah. of prison, died of cancer at 52. He did not have it easy. Go watch John Hawk's recent 30 for 30 about uh, John Calipari, the Kentucky coach, and, and you can see some of that. Um, in, a, in 2015, Mike Wise, who was then with ESPN, profiled Wall, and he said, and Wise asked him, where would you be if not for basketball? And Wall said, I'd probably be in the streets or in jail. Um, so I, it's, it's fine by me, right? <laughs> Whatever motivates you to get better and to demand respect and to look at the horizon of, of NBA players and say, I deserve to be part of that group and I deserve to be getting that kind of recognition, especially when you combine it with the fact that John Wall does seem like a, a sincere guy about helping other people. He's, he's a truly genuine kid. Um, he's helped a lot of guys get big contracts to go elsewhere. And um, he also donates a lot of money to like, community centers, to uh, D.C. public schools. Um, and he uh, really had a, t- a really strong connection um, with a young girl named uh, Maya who, uh, was, who was, had cancer. And uh, she recently passed uh, about, I think, two years ago or a year and a half ago. Um, John just immediately connected with this girl. He helped her meet Nicki Minaj, and it wasn't just like for a show. He really um, spent time with her family and got to know her little brother and, and just really bonded with them. And when she died, he was like so wrecked emotionally. He skipped a preseason game to go to a vigil for her. Um, the team allowed him to do it, um, but it just shows that he had a genuine connection with this with this young girl and that he wasn't just doing it just to get a couple of um you know good good articles written about him he he when he is sincere about like connecting with people like it it is genuine he's always come across as that kind of guy i mean he has his flaws i mean he no one's perfect he um he he gets angry he he flips he from time to time um he's a very emotional person but i think that's what people who are around him admires the fact that he is a real person. He doesn't know how to put on a show. He doesn't know how to perform and uh, and, and necessarily give you uh, what you would consider the PC response or anything. He's, he's just going to come straight from the heart. The Western Conference Finals began on Sunday. Uh, the Warriors beat the Spurs 113 to 111. The Spurs led that game by as many as 25 Kawhi Leonard left the game in the third quarter after rolling his foot on Zaja Pachulia's foot. He had scored 26 points, held Kevin Durant to 14, and then after that, the Warriors outscored the Spurs 58 to 33 and wound up winning. Uh, Twitter went bananas, screaming that Pachulia deliberately stuck out his foot when Kawhi was shooting so that he would land on it. Jalen Rose on TV said he agreed. Kawhi said he did not. I didn't think so. What'd you think, Michael? I don't. I definitely don't think that it was. There's any intent. Um, you know, Zaza is just a really wild, um, you know, clumsy player. I mean, 
And I think if you look at the what he's done, the damage that he's done this year, you can't really say it's his fault, especially when you consider he's the reason why Kevin Durant missed five weeks this year with a knee injury, you know. Um, him, him tussling with Marcin Gertat, he fell right on Durant's knee and knocked him out, and I'm pretty sure he wasn't trying to take out Kevin Durant. I'm like, I can pretty much bank on it. He wasn't trying to take out <laughs> uh, an MVP candidate on his own squad. Um, it is. It was. It was reckless. I think he's more reckless than malicious. And um, you know, he 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 ran out there to to contest a shot. But if you look at just how his body moves, like he just couldn't stop from his body from from pushing forward and in, in, in the Kawhi. Um, and the other thing too that I think people's jump they're jumping on Jaja Pachulia and saying, "Oh, well, uh, he's the he's the reason why this happened." But Kawhi was already struggling with the tender ankle. And he was trying to fight through it, but a few minutes before that, he stumbled on his own teammate's foot, who was sitting on the bench. You know, he he made, he made a big three, and then stumbled on the bench, and then stepped on David Lee's foot, and then hobbled down the court. And he was trying to fight through it at that point, but nobody's jumping on David Lee and saying that he needed to move his feet from the bench so Kawhi wouldn't step on it. I mean, the risk was that he was already playing with a tender ankle, and it's really an unfortunate thing. Um, but I, I don't know if the intent, whether it was whether he intended to do it or not, matters. It happened, and it's really unfortunate because this is a series I think people have been anticipating for a long time, and the Spurs had come out and really just punched the Warriors in the mouth, which is something we haven't seen really most of this season. And now we might just wind up just having to look forward to that inevitable Warriors-Cavs finals without much suspense in between. I like more reckless than malicious. I'm going to change my Twitter bio. Michael Lee is a senior writer for The Vertical at Yahoo Sports. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anytime, guys. Thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The NFL draft is over. Free agent signings are slowing down and the off-field off-season is starting to transform into on-field preparation for the fall. This week, a handful of teams are holding OTAs, formerly known as Organized Team Activities Off-Season Workouts in NFL jargon, with the rest getting going soon after. But barring a sudden change, one young and experienced quarterback won't be reporting to any team. That, of course, is Colin Kaepernick, who remains unsigned. And the question is why? Is it his ability his on-field political activism, a combination of the two, or a casual or even concerted effort by the NFL's 32 teams to blackball the 29-year-old who started for the San Francisco 49ers last fall. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Stephen White. He played seven seasons as a defensive end with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New York Jets. Currently, he is an NFL columnist for SB Nation. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to start with Kaepernick's play because a lot of what you do for SB Nation is breaking down tape and analyzing the game. Last week, 
after watching tape of Kaepernick from 2016, you went on a tweet storm deconstructing his performance. Among other things, you wrote, I'm seeing him throw dimes in tight windows using placement on shorter throws to keep his guys from contact. All the stuff folks said he would never be able to do. Tell us what you did and what you saw. Well, it's actually kind of my second time doing it. And it's born out of the frustration with the fact that we keep getting these reports about him not playing well last season. And that simply just isn't the case. Um, did, was he rusty when he first came back? Yes. You know, you could tell that the time off from the injuries or what have you was slowing him down. But after the bye week, the guys started playing like a legitimate NFL starter and definitely probably one of the top 15 quarterbacks in the game last year. He finished the season with two games over 70% Stephen, Mike Freeman had an interesting piece in Bleacher Report the other day where it's kind of untangling two things here. There's there's one, you know, sort of sort of strain of thought that Colin Kaepernick would somehow be a quote unquote distraction. I know that's such a stupid word, but in, in a locker room, there's another strain of thought here that general managers and maybe team owners are actually really angry at him, like personally angry at him for taking a knee. Which one of those do you think plays more in the minds of people uh, for being a reason why he isn't signed? Well, I think really it goes all the way up to ownership. Um, Dr. Harry Edwards had an interview published uh, earlier this week, and everyone kind of focused on the fact that he said three teams had contacted, contacted him about Colin Kaepernick. But was more, what was more uh, interesting to me was the fact that he admitted that he thought himself, a guy who's been a consultant for the 49ers, that there are owners who don't want Colin Kaepernick in the league, let alone on their team, I, I believe was the exact quote. Mm-hmm. And so we all know that there are owners in the league who are powerful enough that if they don't want a player in the league, the player is probably not going to be in the league. Peter King of Sports Illustrated quoted anonymous sources the other day that people in the 49ers front office think that Kaepernick might actually rather do social justice work full time than play quarterback. So it's not just that some owners may disagree and don't want Kaepernick in the league. It's that there's like this whole alternative narrative being created that has nothing to do with what Colin Kaepernick has said publicly. He finally got in touch with Shannon Sharp the other day, who had also said some stuff about what people are saying about him to say, I want to play. I've made no contract demands. No team has contacted me directly. My whole thing in this situation is this. Look, let's just call it what it is, and then I'll be okay with it. We can debate whether you think owners should be able to blackball a player, but let's stop acting like that's not what's going on here. Because you had the 49ers coming out a few weeks back saying that they knew, quote-unquote, that one team was trying to sign him when that wasn't the case. Now you have people taking Dr. Edwards' quote out of context and, make, and making it seem like Dr. Edwards is Colin Kaepernick's agent, Right? Uh, Dr. Edwards said he told things he wasn't sure if Colin Kaepernick wanted to play or not. I'm pretty sure if he was close to Colin, he would know that sort of thing. So all of these questions, if people got so many questions about Colin Kaepernick, why aren't they calling him? (laughs) It's a good question. I love how this becomes a proxy argument, right? People think Colin Kaepernick did something bad by kneeling on the sidelines, but then they don't actually follow that train of thought all the way through they just immediately switch over to oh he's a bad quarterback that's not why that's why he's being signed and those of us on the other side saying 
Colin Kaepernick had a you know a meaningful act of of you know made Civil a meaningful act. Less. Yeah, exactly. And and then we all and then somehow we all wind up on the on the side of oh well he's a he's a good enough quarterback to be in the league. But it's it's almost like we just change the argument of what we're actually talking about is whether you're mad or not that Colin Kaepernick took a knee on the sideline. Here's a guy that was sitting at first, and people said that was disrespectful, so he knelt by himself, not drawing attention to himself. If you were paying attention to him, it was because you wanted to. Did this as peacefully as possible, didn't hold up anything, didn't kneel on the 50-yard line to hold up the game, and yet people are still mad about it. But you know what? They're sure right. If you feel like he was wrong, so be it. But again, let's, let's be honest about that. Okay, because this is not about how he played. Colin Kaepernick has never looked as good throwing the football as he did last year, and it really isn't close. And when you compare his tape from the year before, when he was pretty much awful the year prior, and yet in that offseason, you had a team like the Broncos coming off a Super Bowl win, wanting to trade for him, but now he's literally playing his best football ever and nobody wants to touch this guy, again, all I want is let's have an honest conversation about this instead of making it seem like he's asking for too much money or he's not a good player because neither one of those are true. And let's also point out that Kaepernick has said that he won't take a knee during the national anthem anymore. And and I was in Memphis over the weekend, Stephen, and I went to the Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And... Kaepernick's behavior deserves recognition in that kind of a place. He is doing the kinds of things that make him a model for the superstar athlete. He's the kind of player whose off-field behavior is more than exemplary. A couple of weeks ago, he was handing out free suits outside of a parole office in New York. Last year, he pledged to donate a million dollars and the proceeds from jersey sales to community charities, and he publicly showed where those uh, contributions were going. Dave Zirin wrote a story in The Nation uh, last week in which he followed Kaepernick's youth empowerment initiative, Know Your Rights Camp, for a day. And I totally recommend that piece. Uh, There isn't a phony note in there. Kaepernick isn't just showing up and writing checks. This guy is engaged and his message is positive and it's powerful and it would serve the league well. So that's where the if he's really not bad, when you look at the all 22 video, then I find it impossible not to disrespect the NFL for, for, for a front office for not finding a way to bring him into camp. It seems counterproductive. I mean, you got Josh McCown slated to start in, uh, for the Jets. <laughs> okay. Like I said, you got EJ Manuel on the Raiders. You have Brock Osweiler has a job with the, with the Browns. Blaine Gabbard's got a job. Browns, Blaine Gabbard, a guy who lost his job to Colin Kaepernick last year, and only managed to get five touchdowns against six interceptions when everyone was telling me, well, this is Blaine Gabbard's second chance, and he's going to show everybody now that he's in an offense that caters to what he does. But, you know, he just gets a job with the Cardinals. Colin Kaepernick can't even get a phone call. And and I, I made this comment yesterday, and it's true. Look, here's the thing. If people really believe that this is about Colin Kaepernick not being able to play football, then any team that calls him can just sign up to a one-year deal. And guess what? There are plenty of quarterbacks that get one-year deals that don't make it out of training camp. So if Colin Kaepernick is that bad, they can just sign him and then later on cut him. Steven, you played in the NFL. Let's say Colin Kaepernick miraculously gets signed tomorrow by someone. 
what would be the actual effect of bringing someone like him with his interest in activism into an NFL locker room? What would it affect? I actually think it, it would be a positive. I think that even for guys who don't agree with him, Colin Kaepernick has been open to talking to people. You know, he's not just done the activism side of giving uh, and, and going out and talking to, you know, like-minded people, okay? So this is a guy that I think is a leader, a natural leader, and a guy who people will gravitate to even if they don't agree with everything he does. But, you know, if a team doesn't give him that chance, he's not going to be able to show up any of that. And there's only one way you can find out. Stephen White played in the NFL. He writes for SB Nation. Follow him on Twitter at SGW94. He's a good follow. Stephen, thanks, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There is definitely an argument to be made that among all football players, quarterbacks are the most prepared to become television commentators. For one, they wear headphones on the sidelines when they're not playing. And two, people bark orders into their ears while they are doing their jobs. But familiarity <laughs> with the technology of listening devices does not a good commentator make. And that's why we cannot be certain that Tony Romo and Jay Cutler will succeed in their second careers, which begin this fall. Brian, Tony Romo is heading to the number one booth at CBS with Sapmeister Jim Nance. Jay Cutler is going to the number two booth at Fox. He'll work a three-man crew with Kevin Burkhart and Charles Davis. Advantage Cutler here. He won't have to do all the top games. He'll get more reps, as they say, on the football field. How did you view the signing of these two guys right after their careers ended to move into television? I think if we had to pick a football analogy, this is the Kansas City Chiefs trading up in the draft for Pat Mahomes. Right. You don't need Pat Mahomes to beat the New England Patriots in January this next season. But you hope that in a couple of years, he's going to win you a bunch of games and he's going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the league. I think that's what both these networks expect of these guys. Yeah. They're, don't, they're not getting finished products. And, and you have some time, right? There's, uh, there, there's time to be had. You know, CBS doesn't have the Super Bowl this year, so you're not throwing Tony Romo into that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they hope that these two guys will be among the better announcers in the league in a couple of years. Romo is just the fifth, and I didn't realize it's the fifth lead analyst in CBS history. Pat Summerall, Tom Brookshire, John Madden, Phil Simms. That's pretty amazing um, that they would bestow this job on him. I think as sports people, as you and I are, we forget that Tony Romo has this incredible pop culture resonance. Actually, both he and Cutler do, really. Yeah. They, they dated famous people. Uh, they're well-known. My, my mother-in-law doesn't know who Jay Cutler is, but she knows who Jay Cutler's wife is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they have this kind of stretch outside of football. And yeah, it's a big deal that he's doing that job. And I think also the other thing about Tony Romo is he's so young. 
So in CBS's eyes, ideally, he does this for 20 years. Right. Uh, calling anybody the next man would be ridiculous, but he has a, let us call it a man-like run in network television. Romo's 37. Uh, Cutler just turned 34. Both of them had injuries. Romo was uh, Wally pipped by Dak Prescott, so maybe he was ready to leave. Cutler only played five games last year, um, and he seems to have moved over to television only after no one was interested in his quarterback services. Um, before we get to their respective personalities, I do wonder about the staying power here. Maybe Romo's ready to do this for another 25 years. I, I can't see how Jay Cutler is ready to do this for 25 years. Based on what? That based he just on, doesn't... Well, based on what I know about him. I mean, he was on the Broncos when I wrote my book. He was a rookie. Um, his reputation then didn't change much over the course of his career. Um, he was... Let's just say he did not exactly exude charm. He did not exactly <laughs> um, develop great relationships with the media. I do think that Jay Cutler is a smart guy. He is very analytical when it comes to football. He understands the games very, very well. But he never liked being part of the media, uh, interacting with the media. Obviously, that changes when you're not a player anymore. The dynamic changes. And I think that's an interesting component here, an important component here. Two thoughts for you, Stefan. One, don't underestimate when a player is thrust out of football or sports, how nice it is to be kept in the game by announcing yeah. and how nice it is for people to keep you to both, you know, seek out your opinion for you to be in those interviews with coaches and other quarterbacks. And this is this is a retirement plan. And not every player who gets chucked out of the NFL gets it. The other thing I'd say about uh, him, his media relations, which is a fascinating question of this is. Announcing has this kind of healing power where all of a sudden the guys who were terrible with the media when they were players become great. John Gruden in his last couple of years in Tampa was known as being very standoffish. Mm -hmm. uh, the press didn't like him. All of a sudden the criticism of Gruden on TV is that he's too nice. It's the opposite, that, he's, that, he, that he praises everybody and doesn't actually criticize anybody on television. So he's actually undergone this completely – this complete personality change, and I wouldn't be shocked at all for Cutler to do the same thing. Bernie Lincecum in the Chicago Tribune wrote about Cutler that the next interesting thing he says would be the first. Um, I think he's coming <laughs> in with a little more baggage in terms of the perception of him. I think the critics are going to be hard on Cutler. I mean, I've never seen Cutler in public sort of be jovial, be personable, smile a lot. There's a lot you have to do differently in front of a television camera and behind a microphone than you can do when you're talking to the media in front of your locker or, or on a podium. Cutler's model to me is his Fox colleague, Alex Rodriguez, who didn't smile a lot, uh, was not known as a fairly nice guy mm -hmm. who had a big ego. And you know what? If I'm as a, as a sports fan, if a guy is egomaniacal and testy and all that stuff, I totally understand why you don't like him. As a reporter, as a media consumer, I want the guy with the ego because you know what? He's going to tell the truth. That guy has a stake in all this. He's not going to be Mr. Nice Guy. Oh, you know, he gave a good effort out there. He's going to be looking at that field and saying, I could do it better than that. Or I could, in Jay Cutler's case, maybe I could still do it better than that. Right. And, and that's I think that, the guy who's going to become the good announcer to me. Right. And it's incumbent on the networks, though, to imbue that in the new announcer that you can't pussyfoot. You have to be critical. And Cutler is not liked, perhaps, by fans. The question is whether Cutler is willing to be. You know, to be honest, like you said, with 
the the public? Is he willing to criticize? Um, and you'd think with his personality, he should be willing to criticize, or you can see him being able to criticize. Yeah, I've written this about Tony Romo, and I think it applies even more to him, perhaps. There's a strange thing with ex-players when they go into broadcasting, which is that when they're players, they are rewarded for not saying anything. As soon as you get up to a podium, if you mumble a bunch of charming cliches and give the press just enough to fill out their little radio bites and post-game columns, you're going to be praised for that. You're going to be called disciplined. You're going to be called nice. You're going to have all those kinds of things. All of a sudden, you get into broadcasting, and the expectations are completely different. You, we don't want cliches. <laughs> we don't want you to say nothing. We don't want you to be nice. And I think that the single hardest transition is – for them to basically talk in a completely opposite way than they talked before. Right. I you, think you, this will probably be harder for Tony Romo, who was a, seen as fairly hapless in big game situations, but was seen as a pretty nice guy off the field otherwise. Yeah, you said they've got to uh, unlearn the lessons they learned at the pro football school of the determined cliche in your, in your piece <laughs> on the ringer, which I like. Um, the mechanics of television, Richard Deitch pointed out on Sports Illustrated, can be taught to these guys. Um, the question is whether they will leap into what else is required, because we as consumers of football broadcasts don't really appreciate how much work does go into preparing for these games. The interviews with coaches, the studying the statistics, the creating the you know cheat sheets that you can read off of during the game. Yeah, I had a network executive tell me this once. Quarterbacks especially, but ex-players generally, are very coachable. Because what have they been doing in their whole lives? You made, you made a light of this in the intro. People have been yelling at them yeah. for making mistakes. Yeah. They've been under the thumb of a coach since they were probably, what, six, seven years old, who's been saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. This executive told me it's actually the play-by-play guys that you can't coach <laughs> because they've never had this kind of pressure on them. Mm-hmm. And that when you get one of these, these ex-football players, yeah, they don't know how to talk in 20-second bites. Yeah, they don't know the mechanics of announcing, but they do know how to learn things which is probably the best thing these guys have going for them. No, and the one quality that football players have that is underestimated and underappreciated is the consumption of information and their ability to regurgitate it in critical situations on the fly under pressure. So, yes, I mean, maybe that does explain. I think one, one question I want to ask you is, why do quarterbacks get the benefit of the doubt when they come onto television. I mean, part of it is that they're in the spotlight. We know their names. And part of it, I think, is this uh, appreciation by network executives that they have the intellectual ability to do what's required in this job. Yeah, I think it's probably I think it's probably that this idea that we think they're smarter than everybody else in the field, which they're not always. No, as you know, and I know that's not actually the case. I think if if Syracuse uh, called me tomorrow and said, can you please come talk to our young students? And the young students asked me, Brian, how do I get into broadcasting? I would probably say is one, be a quarterback in the NFL and two, be a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, particularly. (laughs) You will almost certainly get a network TV gig. That's the easiest way to get something. I I didn't know you pointed that on your ringer piece, Troy Aikman, Eddie LeBaron. Roger yeah, Stallback and Don Meredith, whom you called the warbling godfather of Monday Night Football. I mean, these every Cowboys quarterback. All you have to do is show a pulse. Danny White probably didn't quite make it up to that uh, to that minimal level. Quincy Carter didn't get, get him in close. But if you just you don't even have to be a great Dallas Cowboys quarterback. You just have to be kind of a famous Dallas Cowboys quarterback, and you will get work in television. All right, the fallout from Romo getting hired is that another 
Hall of Fame quarterback, well, not another one, but a Hall of Fame quarterback, Phil Simms, has been demoted um, from the uh, number one booth. Sims had his critics, like most of the viewing public. Yes, he did. Um, this is hard, I would think. I mean, Sean McManus, the chairman of uh, CBS Sports, kicking Phil Sims out of the booth and moving him to something else for a guy that he was praising last summer during uh, during during the, the the preseason is kind of a a, a shocking turn of events, or maybe not, because it's TV and personalities get moved around all the time. Well, but in the world of network TV sports, CBS doesn't like controversy. Uh, CBS Sports is much like CBS, the television uh, mm-hmm. network. They, they, they like wholesomeness. They like lack of – they don't want announcers like FS1 wants or even ESPN wants who are going to go on there and make news by saying something crazy and controversial. They want guys who are going to call a good game and you know and be smart and be charming i mean jim nance is in in many ways you know the ideal of cbs that's why he's the face of the network so for there to be this kind of move where essentially mcmanus goes and takes and calls up phil sims and says you know it's over uh that that was surprising to me it was really surprising to me it's not surprising at all that they then immediately found a slot on the pregame show and thus guaranteeing Phil Sims years and years of employment because they really do like the guy and they consider him a member yeah. of the family. Yeah, there's a lot of chairs on those stages. Um, and the, the, the rapidity with which this occurred is pretty shocking, too. Um, Sean McManus was saying last summer, I would just suggest that if people listen to Jim and Phil with an open mind, I think they would recognize what a good job they are doing. And those, those words wouldn't sound familiar to anyone who's actually listened to Sims call a game. But to then backpedal away from them um, and make this dramatic move, move when Tony Romo decides to retire is pretty interesting. I think the Sims thing that was so surprising in his last couple of seasons was that he wasn't even really talking about quarterbacking on the on the air anymore. I still remember that AFC title game, great game with against the with the Patriots against Peyton Manning on his last legs, and he never talked in that broadcast about why Peyton Manning was struggling to throw the ball or the, you know, the specific manner in which Peyton Manning was laboring out there, which is the kind of thing Phil would, you would think would want to explain to us Mm -hmm. and, and would be, would be ultimately qualified to do. I think when you talk about the rapidity of the move, this is the rare case where CBS is bidding against the Houston Texans. <laughs> They're not just bidding against Fox or ESPN. <laughs> they are, they have to go and say, we're going to put something together that is going to get Tony Romo out of football. Because I think there's still a scenario where Tony Romo, if, if CBS doesn't go, come along, somehow the Cowboys thing gets done, uh, he gets released or whatever it is, and, and, he, and he gets another at least training camp preseason, maybe a couple of games into the season before he inevitably breaks down to go prove himself. But it's a network fighting against NFL suitors, which is really unique and really kind of cool. And that might have been the case with Cutler, too. I mean, he probably could have gotten a job. And if you want to look at these individual lives and the injuries that these guys have suffered and the potential injuries that they are avoiding, uh, the hits they're avoiding by, by retiring at this point, this is good for them. Oh, it's a cush job, especially for Romo. I mean, Romo's going to be Romo's going to be on Stephen Colbert. Romo's going to be around. He's going to be he's going to have a kind of you know wonderful football afterlife. And also, whenever we talk about announcers, we have to put the giant disclaimer at the end. Do we really care that much what these guys say? You know, we yell at the television a couple of times, but Jay Cutler is replacing John Lynch. What was your favorite John Lynch moment from last season? What was your least favorite John Lynch? I would love, I would love to, to hear if anyone can actually answer that question. 
Uh, none of us are going to tune out to any of these games because the guys are watching. Maybe we'll mute it once in a while. But I would I would suggest that with all announcers, you know, we get really worked up about the moves. It's big. It's kind of cool. It's like late night TV. It's this Game of Thrones. And then at the end, we watch the game. We go, ah, okay. You know, he's he's talking on the air. It's okay. It turned out fine. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Forty-five years after posting the NFL's only perfect record, the 1972 Miami Dolphins are probably best known for cracking open champagne every time their accomplishment is safe for another season. But as the players on that team age, their fame will endure for another more disturbing reason, football-related decline and death. At least four players from the 1972 Dolphins have died or are dying with dementia, Sports Illustrated's S.L. Price recently wrote separate long stories about two of them, linebacker Nick Bonaconti and running back Jim Kick. Scott joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hey, how are you? Well, uh, I think we need to put into context for younger listeners that these guys were huge stars. I mean, two of my most vivid Sports Illustrated cover memories are of Kick and his running back partner, Larry Zonka, in 1972 on the Dolphins. And then a recreation of that cover three years later when they and receiver Paul Warfield jumped to the World Football League. These guys were huge. Um, yeah, they, they were huge. The Dolphins in the early 70s were, uh, you know, an, a, a dynasty. They went to three straight Super Bowls. And Bonacani, um was sort of the hub of the no-name defense, uh, an incredible array of incredibly bright, really tough and stingy uh, defenders that basically uh, were responsible in many ways, obviously, for uh, the Dolphins being the only undefeated team. And, you know, on a sort of broader level, uh, these guys, this generation of players in the early 70s, late 60s, really are, are, are the, are the they, they believe they're the ones who really helped create or did create the modern sort of cultural juggernaut that we all deal with now with the NFL and and I believe that's that's correct. I mean, you you think of the Dolphins, the Steelers, uh the America's team, Cowboys, Raiders, um there's so many teams whose whose character and whose persona was formed at that point in time in the in the public mind and I mean, these guys are legends. I mean, Bonacani and Kick, Kick obviously is lesser known. He had sort of four four Superb seasons with the Dolphins, but he, he's certainly not as well known as Larry Zonka, his 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 backfield mate. Although the two of them really are are in in the public mind, I think joined together as as Zonka and Kick. Um, uh, it, it, they're two of the great running back names we've ever heard, Larry Zonka and Jim Kick, and um, and overall um, they're absolute icons in South Florida, especially, and um, they really stand for a generation that's really now hitting this brutal part of what football does to people. What's striking to me about Bonacani's uh, deterioration is that he's one of the few guys who's come forward that we've heard from who was actually a media figure in addition to being a, a famous football player. How would you describe what his sort of post-career 
career was like? Well, I mean, I, I, Nick is, I mean, one reason I was so intrigued by um, focusing on Nick was that he was not your sort of just typical ex-jock who went into coaching or scouting or whatever. Nick was, um, and is, uh, but at the time when he was playing for the Boston Patriots, he, he went to night school, law school for four years and got his degree, law degree, and, and really was, I wouldn't say bored with football, but he certainly could take it or leave it. And, um, you know, he, throughout his career, I mean, he almost retired when, after his seven years with the Boston Patriots, um, and used that leverage to, to hold up Joe Robbie and the Dolphins for a very good, not very good, very good at the time salary. And, um, uh, but, but Nick, after football, was sort of the, uh, an incredible outlier. I mean, uh, I mean, after Byron Wizard White, I'm, I'm not sure there are many, um, football players who can claim, uh, to hit four pinnacles, uh, in career, in post, you know, football career. I mean, this is a Hall of Fame linebacker who went on to be, uh, a sports agent representing, you know, 30 athletes, uh, including Bucky Dent and, um, Mickey Rivers of the Yankees. And then, um, he's, he becomes the president of U.S. Tobacco, um, and, uh, and then he's, uh, 23 years in the meantime on HBO as a commentator on inside the NFL. And on top of that, and probably the most supreme accomplishment of this guy's life overall, is that he he essentially personally raised almost four hundred and fifty million dollars uh, in the fight to um, basically find a cure for or for spinal cord injuries because of his son Mark Bonacani, who in the mid eighties, um, because of a devastating tackle that he laid on a running back uh, Herman Jacobs uh, when he was playing for the Citadel, is paralyzed from the neck down. And that, I think, and his other careers also shape this narrative, too, Scott. Um, there was tremendous irony in him becoming president of U.S. Tobacco. Um, he was forced, you know, basically to, to, to adopt and defend um, tobacco in the 70s and 80s when it was becoming clearer and clearer to the public that tobacco was a health threat. He became a supporter of the NFL, you know, working for HBO. Sure. Um, and his son... And his son's tragic injury are what really catapulted him to, to this fame. I mean, it's, it's terribly ironic. I mean, and, and Nick does and doesn't engage with this. And I think part of it is, is sort of psychic survival. Um, you know, he, he um, I mean, obviously, he brought football to his family. Football is what made his name and basically paved the way for his post-football careers, obviously. Um, if he wasn't Nick Bonacani, linebacker who took 500,000 hits by his own estimation you know, throughout his life um, to the head, um, uh, he wouldn't have been Nick Bonacani, president of U.S. Tobacco, wouldn't be able to raise that money. He also, his sons, both of whom were linebackers uh, playing college football, Mark at the Citadel and, and Nick the third at, at Duke, um, you know, clearly would not have Played the way they did, and 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 with such fervor and dedication, um, if not for Nick. So Nick brought football to the family, and there are part there are times in his history when you know it's among it's in family lore that he threatened to wrench off, or perhaps even did wrench off his his perfect season ring, um, and and vowed never to wear again after Mark's accident. Um, you know, another time uh, his wife. Uh, Terry's first wife found him on the floor, and he was saying, "God's punishing me. God's punishing me." However, when I asked Nick about this, he was wearing his ring, and he said, "I never really blamed football, but 
He'll also at the same time say football gave us our greatest joys and gave us our greatest tragedies. This is also a guy who at the age of 12 was picking tobacco in the field, never smoked or chewed himself, and then took the job at U.S. Tobacco um, just about the time his dad, um, uh, who he adored, of course, uh, was dying of lung cancer as a lifelong smoker. Um, So so Nick is, is basically at the... Is sort of a human fulcrum for for two of the most astonishing sort of pop culture health crises uh, in the last mm, four dozen years. I mean, between cigarette smoking and, and NFL football, uh, those were two pastimes that really sort of spread absolutely throughout the culture. Scott, why do you think Nick and his family wanted you to write this piece? Well, you know, part of it is is was. <laughs> Part of it is frustration. I mean, the fact is, is Nick is, um, you know, nothing presented itself with Nick. I mean, he's, again, the other reason that Nick was so fascinating to me is because he is so smart and driven and has all the advantages that most of these football players don't. And, and Nick knows that. And Nick has always fancied himself and, and seen himself and been regarded by his teammates as a leader. I mean, he's a guy who they look to. Um, and uh, he, uh, past the age of 70, you know, there are so many age-appropriate um, uh, reasons for the brain to decline. Um, you know, Nick's not a classic case, nor, uh, nor is Jim Kick, for that matter, although he, he began presenting a little bit earlier than Nick, of, you know, say, Dave Dewerson or Junior Seau, these incredibly dramatic um, declines in behavior and mental faculties um, that led to suicide or led to, you know, I mean, led to really extreme behaviors. Nick, I, when I saw Nick in November for the first time uh, since 2009, I mean, he was on stage for 20, 25 minutes emceeing this program out in Pebble Beach, you know, remembering people's names, titles, you know, taking a, um, uh, you know, fielding a heckler's cry and then throwing something right back at him and looking great. And you'd, and if you just saw him there, you'd say, boy, I'll, I'll take that at 75. And Nick has those moments because he's able and capable of doing that. But he's been falling incredibly uh, to an incredible degree in his house uh, or just, you know, just doing the most basic um, things are incredibly difficult for him. His left arm is, is near useless. Um, his, he's obviously prone to rages of frustration, um, even cried out at one point, I should just kill myself and get this over with. I don't think he's suicidal, but I do, you know, that frustration does well up in him. Um, and it, and it's this trying to wend his way through both the medical sort of uncertainty about where we are with, with brain um, trauma and also the, the, and, and the incredible frustration with the NFL and the, the sort of bureaucracy you have to go through to sort of uh, detail the deficiencies for the uh, concussion lawsuit and, and just the medical bureaucracies. Jim Kick's story is, uh, in many ways, the polar opposite of Nick Bonacani's. Uh, his post-career was not as lucrative, um, not as successful, and his decline was dramatic and horrible. Tell us about Kick's story. Well, Jim, um, yeah, he, 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 didn't, he didn't have a great career. He didn't really know what he wanted to do with himself. He ended up being an investigator for um, a public defender's office in, in, in South Florida. Um, but, and, and he took a ton of hits. 
uh, as well as as all these guys did at the, in that age. And, he, and what Jim, you know, told me is is the the joke that they all say, which is you know you you'd go to the sideline after taking a hit and. The trainer would hold up four fingers and say, "How many holding up?" And you'd, you'd, he'd say three, and they'd say, "Good enough, get back in there." And and Shula was known certainly for for you know saying the exact same thing. Don Shula, the head coach, legendary, uh, most winningest coach in NFL history, I guess. And two marriages broke up, and um, he has a daughter, Allie, who plays professional tennis, and a son. But he was living by himself in South Florida, and as he declined. And he is—he has been diagnosed as—I mean, his neurologist is saying, "I know that CTE cannot be diagnosed until autopsy, until death." But if ever there was a case where I can say that this guy has CTE, it's Jim Kick. He says, "You look at his—you can see. Usually, these things are microscopic, and you can't see them on an MRI." He said, "With Jim Kick, he has holes in his brains. He has—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's a very, very extreme form of 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 CTE, and he dementia." you know, uh, CTE leading to uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and, and, and he was living by himself and didn't have someone there day to day to sort of take care of him, sort through the mail, see the, the changes in his behavior. Um, he would have medicine, you know, that he was taking blood thinners, et cetera. And, you know, his son, Austin, who was suddenly the only person who was there to sort of take care of him, his ex-wife, Mary, who who did look after him somewhat, but she moved on to her second husband, and and they weren't together. And so Austin, his twenty twenty one year old son, is is sort of given given power of attorney, and is is sort of in charge of looking in on his dad. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what the resources are available to him. All he knows is that he's got it. He he went and got a uh, you know there was a a drug um, you know a, a daily prescription. Um, uh, cash, you know, where where uh, you, you put in what you, what drugs you take Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, vitamins and so on and so forth. And he'd he'd look he'd, he'd fill it up for his dad in the week, and then he'd see that the first you know three days were gone the next day. Um, that that Jim just was taking them and would forget that he is, was taking them. These are big tough guys who have been known as big tough guys their whole life, and the final image Nick's case will that much of the public will have of him as him struggling to put on a t-shirt yeah did do does he have any twinge of pride when you were reporting this piece knowing that this image of him was going to be you know broadcast now all over the world you know that's a great question i you know when when lynn um, lynn and nick lynn lynn is is who, nick nick believes his second wife lynn just saved his life because she's been so uh, aggressive and trying to help him find out what's wrong with him um when they told me about the video and showed it to me. Uh, obviously, it's it's striking, especially in context of what you know about Nick. Um, to see him struggle to put on it, just just in order, put on a T-shirt, a hat. You know, that was part of the things that presented themselves. You know, that when the stimuli from driving sort of, um, you know, first you know got to him, and, and suddenly he's jumping a curb, not knowing why he's doing that, or or he's at the gym and he's not understanding how to how to put on a jacket anymore. You know, he just doesn't, he can't sort of figure out how to tie a tie. So here was this physical, and, and, and yet, let me just tell you, both Lynn and Nick, I mean, Nick has been a public man for a very long time. He knows how to get up on stage and sort of get it up for, for public appearances. So when people saw him, for example, at the um, Miami Project uh, Gala last fall, 
he got up and he did just fine. But beforehand, he had fallen uh, again and gashed his face up. And HBO makeup artist had to come in and do up his face. And 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 at one point, the New York Times interviewed him on camera, and he just sort of wandered off. Yeah, I can't do this anymore. In a sort of weird panic. And he had to sit and be calmed down in a lobby. Nobody saw that. He had to be calmed down by Lynn uh, in an empty ballroom uh, for 20 minutes before that. So there's a feeling on the Bonacani's part that, that people won't believe that Nick is suffering or declining. And so they really wanted to show it. Scott, one last quick question. In reporting these stories, you know, we are, we are becoming inured, I think, to the images of NFL players in decline. Is that a hurdle when you're writing about these kinds of cases, or do you just not care and, and, and evaluate each story on its merits? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think I was, to tell you the truth, I'm a little bit surprised by the reaction because I thought that the public had become inured. Now, and maybe we in the media are, but I, I, I've been astonished that there's been an ex, as extreme uh, a reaction. I do. I think they have to be cataloged. Look, every touchdown is, is, you know, seems like every other, and we catalog those. I mean, this is this is important, and it's far more important. And and certainly, the merits of the case in terms of Nick, or the merits of him as a subject, I thought were unique and 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 worth examining. Meaning, not only was he different because he had all the advantages most players don't, both mentally, financially, and just. Um, with resources around him uh, in terms of medically, um, uh, he he's a guy who um, was part of this very special team, and and I and I thought you know our our job as writers and reporters is is to try and make the story new or at least push it forward a little bit. That's all you can ask. So yes, it's the same old story at this point. Gail Sayers obviously earlier this year came out that same generation. But um, there are elements of this story, especially Nick's advantages and the fact that even with those advantages, um, he was always different from everybody else, and yet now he's dealing with the same issues. And um, I think I thought it was important to show. Scott Price is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. You can read his pieces about Nick Bonacani and Jim Kick online. His latest book is Playing Through the Whistle, Steel, Football, and an American Town. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thank you, Brian Curtis, editor-at-large for The Ringer, for filling in for Josh. Thank you. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family 
cannolis and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.